0: Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. This is part two of our two-part EM Cases Podcast on liver disease for the ED doc with Walter Himmel and Brian Steinhardt. In this part two, we're going to talk about thrombosis and bleeding in liver patients. Very confusing, but we're going to clear it up for you nicely. About spontaneous bacterial peritonitis and some pearls on tapping bellies and a few more little goodies to wrap up with. So we've covered GI bleeds in two big episodes. That was number 101 and 102 with Swami and Salim Rezae. So we're not going to get into the details of managing the actual GI bleed here, but there are some nuances when it comes to liver patients and bleeding that I think we need to cover. We've all seen patients that have liver disease and come in with horrible GI bleeds. We also know that liver patients are at increased risk for thrombotic events, for portal vein thrombosis, PE, DVT, et cetera. And we know that the elevated INR we see in liver patients doesn't necessarily mean they're protected from thrombotic events. This is all very confusing to me. So Dr. Himmel, I hereby present you a challenge. Good sir, in less than five minutes, can you explain to our listeners what's going on in the liver patient when it comes to coagulopathy and hemorrhage?
1: Absolutely, first of all, Liberate yourself from all your misbeliefs completely. And remember the following. Individuals with cirrhosis who are admitted to the hospital get more DVTs than patients who don't have cirrhosis. Patients with cirrhosis, as a common complication, get thrombosis of their portal and splenic vein. So patient liver disease are often prone to thrombosis. In fact, are more prone to thrombosis than major bleeding. As far as gastrointestinal bleeding in cirrhotic patients, the major cause is not coagulopathy. The major reason patients with cirrhosis get GI bleeds is portal hypertension. It's a pressure problem, not a bleeding problem. Now, I don't want to overstate it. So first, the INR. If you've been practicing medicine for the last 20 or 30 years, you've been prescribing Coumadin for years, although much less recently. And you're accustomed to knowing that when you give someone Coumadin and blood gets thin, you measure the INR, INR is up, the blood is thin, they're anticoagulated, they're going to bleed. As a consequence of that, you now may believe that the INR is up, it means the patient is prone to bleeding. Nothing could be further from the truth. When you measure someone's INR, you're measuring basically vitamin K dependent factors if the patient's healthy and on warfarin So when you measure the INR and their warfarin you're measuring two, seven, nine, and 10, which is decreased. And protein S and C, which is decreased. And if they're decreased and the patient's healthy under warfarin, they're prone to bleeding, and that's the end of that story. Now let's get to liver disease. Liver disease has a problem with synthesis, and it is true, patients with liver disease produce less factors 2, 7, 9, and 10. They also produce less factors 1 and 5, and you would think, as a consequence of that, they'd be more prone to bleeding, but it's not that simple. The coagulation system has two parts to it. The parts that make you coagulate and the parts that make you uncoagulate, they're balanced. And it is true, people with cirrhosis have a high NR because their factors 1, 2, 7, 9, and 10 are low. However, there's also something called protein S and protein C. Protein S and C are natural anticoagulants. And in liver disease, protein S and C are obviously exceedingly reduced, more than two, seven, nine, and 10. So because protein S and C, your natural anticoagulants are inappropriately, excessively reduced, that makes you prone to clotting. And of course, there's a fine balance and it can vary. We also have to talk about some other factors in your blood because there's way more to life than the factors 1 to 12. There's something called factor 8. Factor 8 is not produced by the hepatocyte. Factor eight is producing endothelium. Factor eight is a marker of inflammation. If you have liver disease, your factor eight is often increased, which means you're going to be prone to clotting. If you have liver disease, your von Willebrand's factor, which lives with factor eight and which lives in endothelium, is going to be increased and you're going to be prone to clotting. So because of factor eight being higher. Because of am millipin factor being higher, and because SNC are too low, you'll be prone to clotting. And because your 2, seven, nine, and 10 are low, you'll be prone to bleeding, and often the two aren't balanced. So some patients will bleed, and some patients will clot. And this is why you see both things. But the overall propensity in liver disease is actually to clot, not to bleed. Now I want to speak a little bit about a couple of other factors. Antithrombin, the property of antithrombin, antithrombin3, is part of your natural anticoagulants that balances the system. And liver disease, where antithrombin is decreased excessively, which means you're prone to clotting. So why do we bleed? And why do we clot liver disease? Because it's not a matter of what's too high or too low, it's dysregulated, it's out of balance. Why is INR meaningless in liver disease other than to tell you your liver is screwed up? It's because your 2, 7, 9, and 10 and S and C aren't decreased symmetrically the way they are with warfarin. So INR liver disease, very important. If it's up, you know you've got liver disease. But it does not tell you you're prone to bleeding because it doesn't reflect all the fine points of 1, 2, 5, 7, 9, 10, protein S, protein C, What should you remember? That you're prone to clotting, that you're prone to bleeding, that high INR that's high does not mean you're prone to bleeding. And these patients often need anticoagulants for clotting.
0: Brilliant. All right. So the key concepts there are, one, that most bleeding complications are actually related to portal hypertension, not to abnormal hemostasis. Yep. That two, a high INR does not mean the patient is protected against thrombosis. And number three, that thrombosis is actually a more common problem for liver patients than bleeding is, even though we tend to remember the bleeding more because we see these massive GI bleeds quite often in the emergency department. And when it does come to bleeding... Really, the bleeding is because of problems with platelets, the platelet number and platelet function, from increased fibrinolysis, from vitamin K deficiency, and from decreased production of some of these clotting factors. So,
1: And fragile blood vessels, and trauma, and atherosclerosis. It's an interaction back and forth. And sometimes it swings in one direction, and sometimes in the other direction.
2: Yeah, the corollary is, if your INR is normal the chances are you
1: have hemostasis capability. Well, I would say for an normally, you haven't got bad cirrhosis. Thank God. Correct.
0: <laughs> Given this confusing pathophysiology, which you've beautifully made nice and simple for us, thank you, Walter, for these patients with liver disease, how do we then, on a practical level, manage the liver patient with life-threatening bleeding in the ED? So besides all the stuff that we know about how to manage GI bleeds that we talked about in the past episodes, when it comes to actual bleeding, what do we need to do? So there's cryoprecipitate, there's massive transfusion, there's pools of platelets, there's uh, vitamin K, there's TXA. What do we have to know specifically when it comes to liver patients and how to fix their bleeding?
1: Well, first and foremost, treat local problems locally. Epistaxis treating locally, oral bleeding is treated locally, bleeding from the gut, you have to treat presumptively ulcer gastritis bleeding and varices bleeding and get a scope early. So you have to all those things. If you are hemorrhaging to death, you have to give blood. If you're not hemorrhaging to death, you will treat the hemoglobin up to about 70 or 75 and no higher. Because we know if you have someone who has an upper chai bleed and they're not Exanguating. And we know if they have cirrhosis and you give excessive fluid or excessive plasma or excessive blood, you make them bleed more and they do worse. So that's the first principle. Now let's talk about the specifics. Are you going to measure a fibrinogen level? Well, if someone's bleeding seriously, you are going to measure their fibrinogen level because these patients are going to eventually use up their fibrinogen, which may be low at the best of times. So the next step is, once you're treating local problems locally and treating the shock, how do you interpret all these lab results? And I think that's the, uh, the issue about cirrhosis. Let's look at them one by one. Platelets. A platelet count of 50,000 is enough to prevent massive bleeding. If you're bleeding terribly and your platelet count goes down to 20 and you've treated all the local problems, you're going to probably give some platelets if you're bleeding massively with a low, low platelet count, if you're bleeding terribly and your INR is seven, are you going to get plasma? Well, I think what you're going to do is this you're going to use a massive transfusion protocol if the patient meets those criteria, which basically means they bled three or four units in the first hour and they're continuing to bleed heavily. That's the basic criteria for a massive transfusion protocol. You're going to follow it, and you will follow the INR, but you're mainly going to treat the protocol. Let me tell you what you will not do. You will not try to reduce the INR back to 2, because frankly, it's impossible. If you've got a patient with INR from cirrhosis, for example, or even from warfarin, for that matter, and their INR is 2 or 2.5, and you give 4 units of plasma, you might return their INR to 1.5 and be of questionable value. So your INR is not your goal. It's treating the shock and the bleeding. Once you're engaged in a massive transfusion protocol, the patient continues to bleed heavily and you've called the appropriate consultants in, and you've managed their shock and you're preparing to do a gastroscopy. If you've done all of that and you've treated locally, you're going to have to measure fibrinogen levels. And certainly in this case, if they're bleeding massively, And if fibrinogen level is less than one gram per liter, which by American standards is 100 milligram per deciliter, you're already going to give fibrinogen. Now, the Europeans use fibrinogen. The Canadians use cryoprecipitate. And in those states of heavy, massive bleeding with a massive transfusion protocol in place and a fibrinogen level under a gram per liter, you're going to give 10 units of cryoprecipitate or fibrinogen uh, if available. I haven't yet talked about managing all these numbers in the absence of heavy life-threatening bleeding. We may come to that.
0: All right, so just to review there a little bit, don't forget to order your fibrinogen level because if they have less than a gram per liter or 100 milligrams per deciliter, then they need, in Canada, cryoprecipitate, and in the States, they need fibrinogen. When it comes to platelets, you really want to maintain the platelet count greater than 50,000 for active severe bleeding or or CNS bleeding. You don't need to give platelets if it's more than 50,000 in general.
1: In the context of heavy, massive bleeding, in the absence of that context, you accept much lower levels.
0: All right. And what about PCCs and vitamin K and TXA for the liver patient?
1: So a certain number of patients with cirrhosis and high INR will be vitamin K deficient. And the figures I've read vary anywhere from 20% to the majority. So I'm not sure what the truth of it is. But certainly it is reasonable in a bleeding patient and even in a non-bleeding patient to give those patients with INR of more than 4, or five, six, seven vitamin K. Intravenously, possibly if they're bleeding heavily and orally if they're not. That's perfectly rational and reasonable. In a small number of patients, uh, it will help their INR, but probably not the majority. And of course, I want to emphasize so much the INR is, is not the thing really to be followed, and you don't just use fresh to trucks and INR because it's not going to work and it may actually be harmful as a basic starting point. There are exceptions to everything I'm saying, obviously. But vitamin K, yep, that has a role, oral or IV, depending on the situation. And it may not reverse the INR if they're not vitamin K deficiency. If the INR is up because of cirrhosis and protein manufacturing problems, it's not going to change the INR.
0: So how do you sort out whether you're going to give vitamin K or not in the liver patient?
1: In a non-bleeding patient with cirrhosis who has an INR, let's say of 4, 5, 10, who is admitted to the hospital, who looks malnourished, which is the most of them I would think, I think giving vitamin K a milligram or two milligrams or five orally is reasonable. In the patients with an INR of 10, who's bleeding heavily, who's just arrived at an apartment, looks malnourished, I think it's reasonable to get vitamin K intravenously in that context. And they're going to give probably five or 10 milligrams IV, not really knowing if you're helping or not, but it would not be unreasonable at all because a certain portion will be vitamin K deficient. And there's no way to definitively test that out beforehand.
0: My understanding is that PCCs really don't have a role in liver patients.
1: We don't have a good answer to that. I would say, had you asked me that question five, six, seven years ago, I would have said PCCs play no role in cirrhotics with a lot of bleeding because they don't correct the problem. I must say, at the present time, there are some physicians who are beginning to use PCCs in this context, but this is not generally accepted, not that well studied at all.
0: Okay. So that's vitamin K, that's PCCs, platelets, cryo or fibrinogen. What about uh, TXA? I mean, there was a while there we were giving TXA for everyone bleeding and now the pendulum started to swing the other way saying that actually there are thrombotic complications associated with TXA for the liver patient who has a severe bleed, TXA or no TXA?
1: That's a great question. Well, a liver patient who is bleeding from their mouth, I might use oral TXA and swish it around. A patient with cirrhosis who a nosebleed, I might use a nasal tampon with some TXA on it. But for an upper GI bleed and a patient with an INR of uh, 5, 6, or 7, best current evidence is do not use the acid. And the most recent study is the HALTED trial. Now, if I look at the t- trial of CRASH-2 in trauma, and look at the old meta-analysis from the Cochrane group, the suggestion was that transnamic acid did not promote thrombosis at all, and in CRASH 2 certainly it did not at all. And the suggestion was, it may have caused slightly less blood loss. But the, the HALTED trial, which looked at the J bleeding Transamic, was quite clear. Transnamic acid did not prevent death. Translamic acid did not prevent death from bleeding. And transamic acid, to my own personal surprise, slightly increased thrombosis from, I think, about half a percent to 1.5 percent. I was a bit surprised by the results, but so the bottom line is I'm not going to be using transamic acid in patients with cirrhosis and GI bleeds. In fact, I'm probably not going to be using transamic acid in life threatening GI bleeds at this present time. It doesn't
2: surprise me of uh, the increased VTE risk with uh, TXA. I do see patients coming in with VTE, not serotics not per se, but and typically females who are given big doses of TXA for dysfunctional uterine bleeding who have significant VTE and, and PE. Uh, and I always ask before I give TXA for ambulatory patients if they have a history of cardiovascular disease or more prone to strokes or if they have a thrombotic state, I don't give it. And we've just talked about how cirrhotics may have a, a rebalanced hemostasis and are are on the pro-coag side, the pro-thrombotic side. So I think all, all the more reason, as you guys just discussed, Lay off TXA. No knee-jerk
0: response in this situation. Before we go on and ask Dr. Himmel about Teg and Rotem, as of 10 a.m. on the day of the release of this podcast, November 10th, tickets for the six annual EM Cases course go on sale. Now, there's only 60 tickets available because we wanted to keep the conference highly interactive in small groups. And of course, this year, it will be virtual online in small groups. So whether you're from Virginia or Melbourne or Sweden or Toronto, you can participate in the roundtable discussions with EM Cases guest experts on day one of the course, and also get into the simulations, ortho workshops, and ECG workshops on day two of the course. That's February 5th and 6th, 2021. So get your tickets at emergencymedicinecases.com slash EM dash cases dash course before they sell out. Again, that's emergencymedicinecasescom slash EM cases course. So Dr. Himmel, one thing we haven't talked about, which is very important in the very sick liver patient who's bleeding, is Teg and Rotem. And a lot of the things that you've been saying up till now become much more simplified and much more nuanced and better treated if you do have TEG and Rotem. Now, most of us don't have access to this, but could you just give us sort of a a brief review of how TEG and Rotem can help us in these kind of patients?
1: The TEG is a little handheld card on which you place some blood. And what it does is it follows your fibrin clot. So you put some blood on this little device, the blood begins to coagulate, you get platelets of hearing, and you get Fibrin formed, and then the fibrin breaks down, and you get fibrinolysis. And as the fibrin's being formed, and as the fibrin's breaking down, it conducts electricity at different rates, and it can be picked up by this card. So you've got a card that retells you what's going on and answers the following question: Is the clot being formed? Is the clot breaking down? And if you the information, you can give more specific uh, uh, therapy.
0: All right. So if you do have access to TEG uh, or Rotem, you should definitely use it to guide your management in the bleeding liver patient. If you don't, then you really need to be thinking about platelets separately. You need to understand what your INR level really means. You need to remember to order your fibrinogen level and then replace it if it's low. You need to understand that TXA is unlikely to benefit and may harm in uh, in patients with liver disease and GI bleeds in particular, and that uh, PCCs are probably not going to benefit. And you should be probably consulting a hematologist if you're thinking about giving PCCs in a, in a liver patient with a high INR. So we've established that Liver patients are at high risk for thrombosis. And we know that liver patients with INRs of five or seven can still develop portable thrombosis and other kinds of thrombosis. Dr. Himmel, is there any lab test that can help us predict thrombosis in a liver patient? And please do not say D dimer.
1: There's no simple test that predicts thrombosis. By and large, you've got to go on the patient's history a physical and then definitive testing to attempt to identify it. Now, we do know that the high INR and the thrombogenic problems are related to a failure of hepatic synthesis. And we do have a surrogate marker, actually a good marker for hepatic synthesis, many markers, but one of them is the albumin. So if the albumin is quite low, you've got a marker telling you that the coagulation factors are low, but you cannot predict in advance if your particular patient of you is going to be bleeding-prone, thrombotic-prone, or where they are in that entire scale. There's no simple measurement.
0: Okay. So suffice to say that if their albumin is very low, you might be a bit more worried about thrombosis.
1: Right. But binectomy is low. You can be sure their INR will be low, unless there's a non-hepatic cause involved. So these things will travel together, and they're both warning signs to... Uh, think carefully, and liberate yourself from all your old understandings of INR.
0: Okay. Unfortunately, there's no well score for albumin and liver patients and thrombosis. (laughs)
1: but uh, Not in the world of thrombosis. All
0: right. I I want to talk a little bit more about portal vein thrombosis. It seems to be one of those diagnoses that's made after a patient's admitted to hospital for some other reason. Dr. Steinhardt, can you paint a picture for us of the patient with portal vein thrombosis so that we at least have it on our radar when a liver patient presents to the ED.
2: Sure. So let's go back to anatomy class and recall the portal vein is formed by the confluence of the splenic and superior mesenteric veins that drain the spleen and the small intestine respectively. An occlusion of the portal vein by thrombus typically will occur in either cirrhotics and or patients who are in pro-thrombotic states. So the presentation, if not the long-term morbidity, mortality in this scenario, depends on whether the clot has extended back into other confluent splenic veins and the intestine. It depends on the specific etiology of the occlusion and where in the chronicity of development you catch it at ED presentation. Generally speaking, portal vein thrombosis is suspected in a cirrhotic with worsening ascites or any new decompensation that's not otherwise obvious at the bedside. So, that's that's the big overview. Because up to a, a third portal vein thrombosis patients are asymptomatic, and then another third presents with vague pain, and then another third presents with some form of GI bleeding. So, not very specific. If there is fever involved and painful liver, then that's suggestive of a uncommon, but for real, a pile of phlebitis. This is a septic clot that forms in, in the portal vein. And the biochemical tests and other tests, really, the liver function tests do not help you here. They're only marginally increased. As are synthetic function tests like INR and albumin, because the hepatic artery circulation compensates for this. So you are right in my experience, Dr. Himmel, that this is often found incidentally, typically on a CT, but you can find it on ultrasound. And uh, how you approach it is more as an inpatient. You decide on multiple factors, whether you're going to anticoagulate, but I, I dare say we don't initiate this in the ER. There are other things we have to consider, including are they bleeding from their varices and weigh a lot of different things that would be on the floor with the
0: internist. Suffice to say that portal vein thrombosis is a tough diagnosis to make in the emergency department, but, you know, we should think about it when we're sending patients off for a CT scan of the belly, you know, Asked to look for portal vein thrombosis if the radiologist doesn't know that the patient has liver disease, because that can definitely change the management of the patient down the road. Some of the clues, like you were saying, only about a third of them will have belly pain. About a third of them might present when they have a GI bleed. The symptomatology is highly variable, and their liver function is usually preserved. But uh, it's something that we need to keep in our radar. And those patients that were debating whether to get a CT of the abdomen or not that have liver disease, we should probably have a fairly low threshold to get that CT because uh, many of them will have portal vein thrombosis that needs to be addressed.
2: Right. The worst scenario, of course, is that this causes a venous infarction of the mesentery, the intestines, either from immediate back pressure or retrograde propagation of the clot. And then, of course, nobody wants mesenteric infarction in anybody, let alone this compromised liver patient. Yeah,
1: you know, That's the biggest risk, of course. Uh, most of the patients I've seen with portal vein thrombosis have been picked up coincidentally because they've had some mild abdominal pain and I've gotten the ultrasound. But certainly, my threshold for ultrasounds in patients with liver disease who present for the site is your pain, is quite low. I'll uh, get much more than I used to. And certainly I do agree, ongoing pain for 24 hours in a complex patient or any severe pain up front, you need imaging for sure. The more you look, the more you'll see portal vein thrombosis and a certain portion, uh, as Brian suggested, will move up into your, towards your liver, will occlude totally your superior mesenteric vein. And of course you can even get a thrombosis of your hepatic vein where your entire liver uh, drainage is interrupted. So. Uh, These thrombotic problems are very real. I'm getting more imaging than I used to, I must say.
0: Let's throw a little wrench in here. So let's say you do get a CT scan or an ultrasound for a patient who has liver disease, who presents with some mild belly pain, let's say, and you get the report back and it says that there's a portal vein thrombosis there and you get all his blood work back and you see that his INR is elevated at three. Uh, He's not taking warfarin. You're assuming that his INR is elevated to three because of his liver disease, does that patient require anticoagulation for his portal vein thrombosis? And for that matter, you know, what if you diagnose PE in a liver patient and they have an INR of three because of their liver disease? Do you still treat them with a DOAC or with Coumadin?
1: Well, I must say in emerge when I've treated all the other conditions and give them antibiotics and stabilize the patient, if it's a small beta thrombosis in the portal vein, I'm not going to be an anticoagulant at that time. I'll leave that for a later discussion once the patient's been stabilized. On the other hand, if this portal vein thrombosis has at the point where the entire portal vein is thrombosed and involving the, also the superior mesenteric vein, now you're entering the world of acute mesenteric ischemia, superior mesenteric venous thrombosis subtype. Does that patient have to be anticoagulated? The bottom line is yes, they do actually. Exactly when you're going to do it, how you're going to do it, uh, that has to be discussed they have to be anticoagulated. Otherwise, they're going to necrose off their entire gut and end up with major resection and surgery. As far as the PE question is concerned, no matter what the INR is, if you've got a pulmonary embolism and your diagnosis is an acute PE or acute DVT-PE, these patients must be anticoagulated. Yes. Now, the question is how are you going to do it? So, Yes, if they've got a thrombosis and it's clinically significant, they have to be anticoagulated. Otherwise, the thrombosis will spread and they'll have another one. Now, which anticoagulant do you tend to use? Well, you've got a couple of options now. Most people will not use warfarin. The reason is quite simple. You can't follow the warfarin. You cannot follow the INR. Now, I've read that if your INR is normal, you can use warfarin. That's true. Most of these patients have INR of 2 or 3 or 4 or 5 or 6, so warfarin can't be used. Can you use intravenous, unfractionated heparin? You can and you might if you're going to stop it, but it tends not to be done any longer because the thrombin time isn't as reliable. So we have two drugs we can use, fractionated heparin like dalteparin or oxaparin, and these drugs are used all the time in patients with cirrhosis who have thrombotic conditions. These drugs are used prophylactically for admitted patients with cirrhosis, even if an INR is two or three or four, because these patients are more more prone to hospitalized acquired thrombosis than patients who haven't got this disease. So the answer until recently was low molecular heparin and the standard weight-adjusted dose. Now, there have been a few studies recently that are beginning to use doax, direct oral anticoagulants. And usually the anti-10 types, and most studies have been looking at rivaroxaban or Ceralto for treatment of DVT and P PE in people with cirrhosis. So the answer is yes, you can use low molecular heparin, and yes, you can use rivaroxaban. I think at this very moment, most of the experiences with the fractionated um, low weight heparin, Fragmin or uh, Dalteparin, primarily. For DVTPE in people with cirrhosis and INRs of two, three, four, five.
0: All right. So then, for portal vein thrombosis, you want to think about low molecular weight heparin and vitamin K as well, right?
1: Yep. Okay. Now, if you want to get, if you have a deathly ill patient with massive thrombosis, and you're at a appropriate center that can do this, you're looking at some pretty intraventilistic approaches. You know, like. uh Interventional radiography, removing the clot in that manner. And also, you're thinking about liver transplants at this point. And also, you're considering, in a patient who's about to die, a TIPS procedure, a, a portosystemic shunting in order to reverse some of the thrombotic tendencies. So, when patients are that sick, they need some very sophisticated interventions. But certainly, high NR is never a contraindication to anticoagulation in this context. Never in this context.
0: I think that's going to be a game changer for a lot of physicians out there. It's a little bit scary to think that you have a liver patient in front of you with an INR of five and they have a PE and you're still going to anticoagulate them. So, that's a great pearl there. <laughs> Now for our advertising segment brought to you by Metricade, the amazing scheduling system. Metricade can actually predict what the average physician-to-time assessment will be any given day by looking at the physician lineup. You know, some of my colleagues see two patients an hour, some see three or four or five patients an hour. If your group wants, Metricade will build the schedule based on this information as well as what shifts everyone prefers to work, creating a lineup that can handle the inflow of patients hour by hour. Best of all, the schedule still feels like self-scheduling rather than a performance algorithm. Let's move on to spontaneous bacterial peritonitis. Our liver patient that we presented at the top of the last podcast had a fever and belly pain. And of course, spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, SBP, needs to be on the differential for all liver patients with pain or fever. So let's get deeper into this. Unfortunately, there's no single test for SBP. So, Dr. Steinhardt, how do you diagnose this sometimes challenging entity clinically?
2: So, it can be challenging, for sure. It can be subtle, uh, especially in patients who have encephalopathy, or it can be overt. It's commonly end-stage liver disease where it presents uh, with ascites, of course, mandatory. Any new onset of fever, abdominal pain, Any new onset of hepatoencephalopathy, as we mentioned earlier, uh, metabolic acidosis, new renal failure, hypotension that can't be explained, hypothermia, leukocytosis, any other concern for an infection as part of this presentation warrants consideration for SBP, and then diagnostic paracentesis is, is the definitive procedure. Fever is the most common sign. And abdominal pain. We know because of the significant fluid accumulation that any organisms and suppurative response will not be as obvious because uh, the parietal peritoneum isn't as irritated because of all the fluid. So you have to think about it in advance, uh, almost uh, you have to have uh, an algorithm that, that includes SBP in patients who decompensate with liver disease. Don't be placated when you have a benign abdominal exam. At least 10-15% of patients with SBP have that situation and have proven culture-positive fluid. So definitely a consideration, definitely a frequent presentation, definitely can be subtle presentation.
0: Okay. And in terms of the abdominal exam, you know, we have lots of patients who come in who have liver disease and belly pain. Some of them will have pancreatitis. Some of them will have cholangitis. There's a huge differential there. But generally speaking, the patients with spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, do they have uh, impressive belly findings when you examine them?
2: Usually not. If you have impressive belly findings, specifically right upper quadrant, uh, tenderness, if not a, a really tender engorged liver, then we're talking alcoholic hepatitis in lieu of SBP. There are peritonitis causes that occur in everybody, not just alcoholic cirrhotics that we have to be aware of. And and so perforated diverticulum, perforated uh, peptic ulcer, other things that can cause secondary bacterial peritonitis you have to be on guard for these can give you a more dramatic presentation but don't expect guarding and rebound in anyone because of the buffering effect of all this acidic fluid you you have to go quickly to paracentesis you you should go on to a definitive imaging and typically it's CT scanning if you're concerned about that the latter presentations we sometimes see fecal contaminant of the otherwise straw-colored acidic fluid that you you tend to get, and so if you see fecal contaminant, you've got your diagnosis of of a secondary problem, not a primary or spontaneous bacterial problem. So th- those are some considerations that we we have
1: to be aware of. I, I must tell you a story. I, I saw a patient about ten days ago came in with severe abdominal pain. Heavy, heavy drinker, he had previous admissions for alcoholic intoxication and violent behavior. So he came in severe pain, he had rigidity and guarding. And I thought this guy had acute peritonitis and had ruptured a viscous. So of course I got a CT scan as quickly as possible. And this guy had no previous diagnosis of cirrhosis. So guess what his CT scan showed? Very significant ascites, which I was unable to detect clinically. And guess what his paracentesis showed? A thousand neutrophils. So I think it's worth remembering people with SBP can have no pain, mild pain, moderate pain, and occasionally severe pain. Although most people with SBP have known established cirrhosis and ascites, you might be the doctor, see them for their first presentation. And their first presentation of cirrhosis might be spontaneous bacterial peritonitis. How often have I seen that? Infrequently. In fact, I would say after 43 years, this was the first time I've seen it or at least recognized it. And as far as your sensitivity for imaging, have a low threshold for imaging. If things don't quite seem exactly where you think they should be. Low threshold for imaging.
0: Yeah, for, for both secondary causes of bacterial peritonitis and for portal vein thrombosis, for because that sometimes
1: matter. you just can't tell. Yeah. And, and certainly if you... Are not going to image, and the patient looks minimally ill, and you've done a thoracentesis and treated. And they aren't getting better. You keep an open mind, man. These are not the patients that you want to think too much before imaging. These patients are very vulnerable people, and they often hide their symptoms. So you've got to have a very open mind <laughs> and realize there's a broad range of presentations.
2: So I'll, I'll I'll relate a case recently of of the opposite end of the spectrum to what Dr. Himmel just described. A patient with known end-stage liver disease, recurrent spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, comes in with a typical uh, presentation. We go in and do a, a very clean, slick paracentesis, and out comes blood, pink, acidic fluid. And, and so we go back and discuss uh, his history a little bit more and, and then go on to imaging. And, of course, he had fallen the week previous, has had a subcapsular hematoma of his liver and bleeding into his peritoneum, so we were actually tapped a hemoperitoneum. So you can never drop your guard in these cases; the, the, they'll they'll fool you.
0: The definitive diagnosis of bacterial peritonitis is made by tapping the belly and getting an acidic neutrophil count of more than two hundred and fifty. So. I want to talk a little bit more about tapping the belly, about paracentesis in a liver patient with ascites. And this is a question for both Dr. Steinhardt and Dr. Himmel. What tips and tricks, pearls and pitfalls can you give us when it comes to tapping the belly of patients with ascites?
1: Have a low threshold for doing it. Determine if you want to do a diagnostic of their therapeutic tap. Absolutely use ultrasound. Uh, I would never do a tap anymore without using ultrasound. It's made me much more... Uh, much more calm and, and peaceful about doing it, for sure. Are you going to get some blood tests first and look at the INR and the platelet count and so forth? Um, yeah, of course you are. Do you absolutely have to? Well, I guess not, but of course you are.
0: Is there an INR that's too high to safely do a paracentesis? And is there a platelet count below which is not safe to do a paracentesis?
1: I'm going to make a statement very akin with the statement about serum ammonia. There's tons of research on this, tons of articles. And Jenny Callum from Steinberg has written an entire chapter about interventions and INR and platelets. There is no INR and there is virtually no platelet count that is so abnormal that you cannot do a paracentesis. Virtually none. So I'll second that with what I alluded to before, the Choosing
2: Wisely Canada campaign. And I mentioned number one, was uh, never rely on a serum ammonia for HE, hepatic encephalopathy. Number two, for minor procedures, which paracentesis is in these patients, do not draw platelets and or INRs. They will not influence
1: you going in or not going in. INRs is not a contraindication to a paracentesis, period. Uh, how about low platelets? Well, if the platelet count was zero or five, or 10, maybe. Certainly, I would be quite comfortable doing a paracentesis of counts counts down to 40, 30, 20. And it doesn't get much lower than that, actually. I, I would. Furthermore, when you give platelets, they might not even raise the platelet count. And how long after the pool of platelets are you going to do the paracentesis? I would say if your platelet count's more than 20, I'm going to do it. If the INR is under infinity, I'm going to do it. But a paracentesis, the most important thing is the ultrasound machine and your skill.
2: Ironically, some of our brethren are reluctant to undertake this procedure. Uh, I don't know why. It's typically like hitting the side of a barn with a snowball. They come in with a, you know, a beach ball belly. This is so distended. This is in the patient who... Has recurrent accumulation of ascites and missed their appointment for uh, outpatient ongoing maintenance paracentesis to debulk the fluid. And so they come in short of breath. They can't breathe, even sitting up or standing, and, and, and it's a massive ascites. So I do take fluid off these patients routinely. Some can argue that they're abusing the emergency department, but uh, I think it's a fun procedure, and they are so grateful. I'm not going to go through the exact procedures. We, You can find that on the web if you want to learn how to do that. But basically, aseptic technique, get all your equipment, including the vacuum bottles, lined up. Pick your site of puncture away from any caput medusae that, that are there or away from the rectus sheath that inferiorly houses the, the big arteries that come up out of the pubic tubercle area, so you don't want to go too medial. I use extension tubing on my catheter once I'm in because we're going to have to change bottles routinely, and I don't want to pull out or, or contaminate that area. So extension IV tubing we find very useful, and I typically don't go beyond Four to five liters. They are grateful for any amount that is taken off. This is a stopgap measure that they know and we know will will help them short term, but they will reaccumulate. I don't typically give albumin because I'm I'm not going beyond five liters. And at the end of an hour and a half of taking the fluid off, and the nurses having to exchange the vacuum bottles to collect f- this fluid, I think. Uh, They're happy and I'm happy and the patient's happy to be discharged uh, without waiting for blood bank to supply the albumin and infusing the albumin, et cetera. So that's what I do. I know others are quite dogmatic about giving albumin. There you go.
0: Yeah, I understand when it comes to giving albumin after removing more than five liters of acidic fluid, I understand that the literature is a little bit murky there. My reading is that if you suspect or they have spontaneous bacterial peritonitis and you take off five liters, then yes, give albumin. But if they're a patient that's just coming in to get the fluid taken off because they're uncomfortable, like the one you described, Dr. Steinhardt, then an albumin generally is not indicated, or there's at least there's no evidence that it helps in that patient. Uh, Dr. Himmel, what's your take on the literature in terms of when to give albumin after a paracentesis?
1: Well, the the guidelines are are reasonably clear. I mean, they certainly say if you're taking off more than five liters, I can't remember less than I ever did that. You should give eight grams per liter of acidic fluid removed of albumin if it's more than five liters. Under five liters, I tend not to. On a few occasions, I've used a pigtail catheter rather than an 18-gauge angiocatheter, an actual pigtail catheter. And boy, did I love that. That fluid came out, it was quite amazing, and didn't block up either. So I did use a pigtail catheter with the extension tubing and a three-way stopcock, and that was a beautiful experience. I never come in the midline. I always come in lateral to the rectus sheath. I always use the ultrasound machine. And one thing I've started doing recently is um, after I removed the catheter, the angiocath, I've been using Dermabond, three, four, five layers of Dermabond, now, it's a bit tricky because you've got to keep the area dry. So you're putting your finger on the hole and putting bond on, and putting your finger back on bond. I find thermobond multiple layers covered with a Tegaderm strip afterwards it has been a very nice way of stopping that drip, 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 which often happens for hours afterwards. So I'm using a more Dermabond, and I'm starting to use that pigtail catheter rather than a, an angiocath.
2: Some people talk about a Zed pattern approach. So you pull the skin this way, you make your initial puncture into the abdominal wall, you pull the skin the other way and you continue your puncture. And then, and that way you get a, like a zigzag track. So when you pull out, there's no direct track from the peritoneal cavity back to the outside and therefore reduce any oozing.
0: All right. So a few tips and tricks there, trying a pigtail catheter and then using surgical glue like Dermabond or swift set. Uh, are examples of surgical glue to prevent the the dripping after. Something to consider, at least. Let's say you've now clinched the diagnosis of SBP. You've got your acidic fluid back, and it shows neutrophils more than 250. This patient's going to get antibiotics and a few other things. Dr. Himmel, how do you treat SBP in the emergency department?
1: Certainly you give antibiotics, and certainly you give them early. I think two of the commonest choices are ceftriaxone, and two grams, or cefotaxime. I think it's two grams every six to eight hours. The bugs you worry about, generally speaking, are E. coli and Klebsiella, gram negatives, and uh, enterococcus, uh, rarely, and I suppose uh, staph is also a a problem potentially. But generally speaking, third generation cephalosporins, and they all get admitted to the hospital, of course, because they're going to be antibiotics for at least five days.
0: Okay, so that's the antibiotic part. What about albumin?
1: The guidelines the, uh, from the American Association of Studying Liver Disease strongly suggests that in patients who are high-risk patients, patients with low albumin, low body mass, higher creatinines, high INRs, more than four or five or six, higher-risk patients giving albumin on day one and day three, Day one, 1.5 grams of albumin per kilogram, and day three, one gram per kilogram is wise to do. If the patient is not considered high risk, their INR isn't six or seven or eight, their MEL score isn't extremely high, you don't have to give albumin.
0: So when it comes to bacterial peritonitis, remember that liver patients are at risk for sepsis and dying from sepsis from any source And bacterial peritonitis is one of those examples of of that infection risk. Remember that the abdominal exam in SBP can be deceptively benign. Most of these patients require imaging to rule out a secondary cause of their bacterial peritonitis. When it comes to paracentesis, don't worry about the INR and don't worry about the platelet count unless it's under 20,000. It's safe to tap, and it's the only way to definitively make the diagnosis of bacterial peritonitis, namely a neutrophil count more than 250. If you do fill more than five liters of bottles with acidic fluid from your paracentesis, uh, consider giving albumin. And if they do have bacterial peritonitis, then you're giving a third generation cephalosporin, like two grams of cefotaxime or ceftriaxone. And you may want to also consider giving albumin at that point as well. So, in this podcast, we covered paracentesis, we covered spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, we covered portal vein thrombosis, the fine balance between thrombosis and bleeding, and how to manage those things in the liver patient. In terms of some key take-home points, I just want to review from the two podcasts that we've done... One is to have a low threshold to order acetaminophen levels in the sick liver patient because a lot of these patients with acute liver failure can have acetaminophen toxicity and we have a very good treatment for that that is time dependent. Number two, sepsis is a common trigger of acute liver failure and may be subtle. So when in doubt, treat on spec medications to avoid in liver patients there's a pretty long list but there's some key ones that are really important whenever possible avoid NSAIDs and if they're sick with hepatic encephalopathy avoid benzos Uh, make sure you choose your antibiotics carefully macrolides and clavulin are, are ones that you might want to avoid watch out for hypoglycemia in these sick liver patients And make sure that after you've corrected their hypoglycemia, that you continue an infusion that includes something like D10W after that hypoglycemia has been corrected. Do not assume that the liver patient with a high INR is anticoagulated. They are still at risk for thrombosis. Keep your differential wide in liver patients with belly pain and have a low threshold for abdominal imaging and think specifically about the possibility of portal vein thrombosis and bacterial peritonitis, even in the patient with a benign abdomen. Remember that ammonia levels are unreliable and can even be misleading. So you need to assume high ammonia levels in the patient suspected of hepatic encephalopathy and treat with lactulose and or polyethylene glycol and rifaximin in the sick altered liver patient. Don't forget to order a fibrinogen level in the bleeding liver patient, and give cryo or fibrinogen to keep that fibrinogen level above 100. And lastly, it is generally safe to perform a paracentesis in a liver patient with a super high INR, no matter what the INR is, and down to a platelet count of about 20,000. Do consider giving some albumin if you take off more than five liters especially if you suspect that the patient has SBP. All right, so anything to add, Dr. Himmel, Dr. Steinhardt, that we haven't covered yet about the liver patient, uh, the future of managing liver patients?
1: Yeah, I wanted to briefly talk about alcoholic hepatitis, which I don't think we specifically talked about uh, on Anthony by itself. So there are some patients who've had fatty livers and who are drinkers who'll come in feeling unwell with abdominal pain, and uh, nausea who will look extremely jaundiced. They'll have bilirubins of 40, 50, 60, 70, extremely jaundiced, and they'll they'll have elevated AST and ALT, elevated uh, enzymes, not in the tens of thousands, but they'll be elevated five to 10 times. So elevated enzymes up to five to 10 times elevated, a little confused, possibly, some abdominal pain, possibly, but definitely jaundiced. What do they have? well, they probably have acute alcoholic hepatitis. Now, why is this an important condition? Because this condition, untreated, can progress rapidly to increasing liver failure and and uh, patients requiring a liver transplant. These patients are often treated with prednisolone for, for 28 days. So uh, that's just another syndrome to keep in the back of your head. Yeah, and they typically have a bigger swollen
2: liver that you when you palpate it, they wince. It hurts. It's stretched.
1: That capsule is stretched. And these patients are complex. They have multiple social problems, and they need advocates, not just advocates for admission, not just advocates for social work, but also advocates for consideration of liver transplants. I'm going to transfer to a big center where they're going to get a TIPS procedure because it's very easy to treat them, have them admitted, and they'll die in the hospital sometimes. There are centers where the patient might be better off and you're often their best advocate. And if you know these things are all options, you can be an advocate. And sometimes even your consultants in your local hospital uh, will be motivated when you bring up these topics because it's very easy to write somebody off after their 20th admission to the hospital. It's, it's an easy thing to do. And um, the treatments available today are, are amazing. Now, the outcomes aren't always great, but there's still lots of options that are not available at every hospital. So we have a a massive opportunity to be tremendous patient advocates.
0: Love it. Patient advocacy is huge. Thank you very much, gentlemen. It's always a pleasure having you on EM Cases. It's uh, just incredible, your wealth of knowledge and expertise.